Welcome to the Autism Hour podcast, where we view each and every individual as valuable and capable. Today, I have a conversation with Dr. Haley Miller, who is an assistant professor at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in the Department of Physical Therapy. Dr. Miller is currently conducting research investigating visuomotor integration in autism spectrum disorder. This pertains to the use of visual information to plan, execute, and modify movement. She is also on the Texas Board of Directors for Autism Speaks and has a wealth of information to share with families and other professionals who are interested in learning more about this aspect of autism. She mentions quite a few resources at the end, so as usual, I posted those in the show notes, so be sure to check those out, and please welcome Dr. Miller to the Autism Hour podcast. Welcome, Dr. Miller, to the Autism Hour podcast. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're here. So tell us about your experiences that led you to pursue a career in academia. So I always tell people I had sort of a very long and winding road to where I am today. Um, my interest in autism started when I was in the fifth grade. Okay. And I had um, kiddos with autism in my school, in my class, and my teacher just made them seem like the two coolest human beings on the face of the planet. So amazing. And so from there, I just had this sort of interest in the perspective of people with autism and what's different for them and what we can do to support them. Okay. So I kind of followed that through and did a little bit of peer mentoring as I got older. And then in college, I started shadowing a behavior analyst at okay. CBA um, when I was at university at Vanderbilt in Nashville. And I got really interested in the process of intervention. Okay. And so I started doing that for a little while after college. And I had a mentor who was a BCBA, and she was kind enough to tell me that I had too many questions to be an interventionist, and I might want to think about being a researcher. And she was totally right. I was getting antsy saying, how do we know that what we're doing for this kid is right for this kid mm -hmm. just because it worked for that kid over there? Okay, already thinking like a researcher. Yeah, I had yeah. all these questions swirling in my head, and it was it was maybe the best um, jarring piece of advice anybody had ever given me that I might think about going into the research side of things. So okay. that's how I ended up here. Okay. Did you ever consider that before that person? You know, not really. Okay. I, I sort of followed this path through college thinking I was going to go into music therapy and then um, slowly sort of shifted my interests toward maybe a little more psychology, a little less music. Okay. Um, so I was really intervention tracked for a long time okay. and, and that was an aha moment for me. And okay. I got into grad school and started doing research and I thought, oh yeah, this is, this this is, is it. Love. These are my people. Okay. <laughs> what um, sparked your interest in music therapy? So I grew up just in a, a musical family, okay. singing, playing piano, um, things like that. And I just always really loved music. And I thought, well, how could I do this, but also help people. Um, you know, there's that saying, there's no business like show business. I wasn't really interested in show business. Okay. I just wanted music in mm -hmm. some way. And so I was trying, I think, to find a way to smash my interest in music together with my interest in autism and helping people and those kinds of things. And um, that didn't quite pan out the way I expected it to, yeah. but it's made for an interesting journey to okay. this point. So do you use any music therapy at this point or have you at any point? No, I don't. Okay. Um, right now what we do in the lab is research on sensory motor systems. So mm -hmm. how people with autism take in sensory information and okay. how they use it to help them with balance and movement. So it's a little bit different from uh, things you might use musical therapy for, although music 
music therapy can be a complement for some of the symptoms that we talk about in our research. Okay, awesome. So I'm a little curious to hear about what that teacher, that initial teacher was doing to include those students with autism into your classroom and how she made them seem really awesome, like you mentioned. Yeah. What so it was back in the like? 90s when okay. nobody was including people mm-hmm. in classrooms. Yeah, this I is know, a pretty I'm new thing. I just that. aged myself here a little bit. But um, yeah, it was, it was interesting the approach that they took because they had their own aide who came into the classroom with them, but our teacher would make it um, exciting for the typically developing students to sort of race to get finished with something so that we could then go help them or see what they were doing. Um, We tried to include them whenever we could or they would be doing something that was related to what the rest of the class was doing. So they were very much a part of the community. And um, they walked at graduation with the rest of the graduating class. So So from day one, they were really brought along. Um, And they had some other co-occurring conditions. So it wasn't just autism, but that was a part of it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just a really interesting experience from a kid perspective to have people like that grow up with you through school, not to just sort of yeah. pop in and then pop mm-hmm. out from a special ed class, um, you know, five minutes out of the day. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it was sort of revolutionary at the time what they yeah, were doing, absolutely. although being in fifth grade, you know, what do you know? But um, yeah, it just it was a very different experience from what most people had at that time in classrooms, I think. And a lot of us from that class have gone on to be educators, have gone wow. on to be interventionists. Um, you know, it's it's kind of cool, the little community yeah. of advocacy that that You need to produced. reach out to that teacher and say, look what yeah. you did. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. So from that point on, you knew like you wanted to work with individuals with autism or did it take some time for that to develop? So I knew I wanted to do something to do with autism. Okay. I didn't know that I wanted it to be my career okay. at that point. I think I had just an interest in general in, in volunteer work mm-hmm. and in um, philanthropy. And so I was raised in a family where that was a value. That was something we did as a family, go okay. out and, and try to serve. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think the older I got, the more I realized you can serve in your free time, but you can also serve through your professional your career, life. Yeah. And so that's when it really sort of crystallized for me as a professional goal okay. to do research, but not become that ivory tower researcher that's disconnected from the community, yeah. um, but to really stay engaged and, and do a lot of active community work as well. So you still do a lot of volunteering mm-hmm. in your spare time? Yeah, okay. I do, I do. Um, I work with a couple of different organizations. Um, I work with Autism Speaks. I work with a lot of local groups okay. that uh, do sensory-friendly programming or that serve people with autism in, in various ways. So okay. I try to stay engaged, and yeah. um, I encourage our students to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. We really push for them to get out and be advocates and learn how to interact with the autism community in mm-hmm. a way that's productive and yeah. uh, collaborative and so that we're not doing something to a community but doing things with a community. Yeah, it's definitely. Really that's so important and I think that's something I emphasize a lot is what's the point of research if you're never interacting with the people who exactly. can utilize the research? Exactly. So. And we ask our families all the time. Sometimes we get sort of wild card answers that we can't help with but yeah. we ask families all the time if, if you could direct our line of research what would you want us to be doing? Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten some really interesting things from we'd like research on dreams and autism. Well, that's way outside of my area of expertise, (laughs) so probably our lab won't take it on, but I love to hear those things because Mm -hmm. it helps us know what would be of value to families, to self-advocates, to educators, Absolutely. Um, and in doing so, we can sort of 
change our program of work and make sure that it stays relevant. Yeah. What are some responses that have changed what you do on a day-to-day? -day? Yeah. So when I first started here at the university as a postdoc, um, before I started in my faculty position, we had a family come through that had a child with autism, but also with some other co-occurring conditions, okay. had ADHD and some movement difficulty. And that um, was the first time that I had really thought about how we would study co-occurring conditions in okay. autism. It's not an easy thing to study, it's yeah. a little bit tricky, um, but it really got me thinking about whether we could build our research tasks in a way that would sort of test different parts of the system okay. to figure out which condition was driving symptoms. So for example, um, in the studies that we do right now, we're really interested in autism. We call it autism pure and autism plus. So okay. autism by itself versus autism plus ADHD or autism plus developmental coordination disorder. Okay. And so we're building tasks to try to stress the attentional system a little bit more mm -hmm. and see what happens in those cases. Okay. Um, stress the motor system a little bit more and see what happens in those cases. And Ultimately to see if they have a co-occurring exactly, condition. Exactly, to okay. see if they have a co-occurring co condition, but also to see what influence that co-occurring condition has okay. on their behaviors. Okay. So interesting. And we're going to have you talk a lot about your research here in a minute, sure. but I want to go back to a little bit more basic. So tell us just about autism spectrum disorder in general. So tell us about the characteristics and all everything that you know in a nutshell. <laughs> That's going to be a big nutshell. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think the most important thing to be aware of at this point is that the criteria have changed a little bit mm -hmm. for autism over the years. Right now, what we classify as autism is a spectrum. And it can range everywhere from what we used to call Asperger's, mm -hmm. or some people call high-functioning autism, yes. all the way to a more severe version of autism with symptoms that can look a little bit more difficult, can mm -hmm. cause a little more challenge for people, and can include intellectual disability sometimes. Um, so it's a pretty wide range. It happens in 1 in 68 children, mm -hmm. and it's in 1 in 42 boys. Now okay. this is kind of a tricky bit because we're starting to understand that autism looks a little different in girls than it does in boys. Mm -hmm. So we've always had this idea that it's four to five times more likely in boys, mm -hmm. but I think some of the emerging research is kind of questioning that assumption okay. and asking, is it just that we don't know how to recognize it as effectively okay. in girls? So I think that's kind of an exciting avenue, although yeah. it's not one that we study specifically, mm -hmm. it's something that's kind of emerging in the field. Okay. Um, autism in general is diagnosed by having difficulty in social communication mm -hmm. and having either restricted interests or some kind of repetitive behavior or both. Okay. So those are sort of the core domains mm -hmm. of autism. But what's really important to know is that autism is a whole body disorder. And we say whole body disorder because it comes with a lot of symptoms beyond just psychological things like social and communication issues. Yes. It can come with gut problems, GI mm -hmm. problems. Um, it can come with sleep disorder. It can come with a seizure disorder. It can oh. include difficulty with immune response and, and getting sick more often mm -hmm. and not being able to recover easily. Um, it comes with sensory motor symptoms, the ones that we study, mm -hmm. can include self-injury, and a lot of the time also comes with other psychiatric conditions mm -hmm. like obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorder, yeah. major depressive disorder. So there's a lot of other stuff that goes along with what we think of as the core of mm -hmm. autism. And those things aren't part of the diagnostic criteria 
but the new way that we diagnose and assess does ask for clinicians to assess a, a wider range of these things. Mm -hmm. So I think we're thinking more comprehensively about what's involved in autism, even if it's not a checkbox in the core symptoms. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. And would you say that it's it's more rare for an individual to be diagnosed with just autism and it's more common for them to have one of those co-occurring You know, I think, I think we're still learning that. Okay. I think we are still okay. learning because so often, and, and what we're finding in some of our studies is so often the autism diagnosis takes precedence over everything mm -hmm. else. And once they have that diagnostic label, everything stops and they shift to intervention. Okay. And so even in going through, um, we've got two sort of retrospective studies where we're looking at charts from a local healthcare system and where we're also looking at a database compiled by the CDC okay. nationally. Um, in those studies, we're seeing that a lot of times people go through this process of either getting a wrong diagnosis first and then getting an autism diagnosis, mm -hmm. but the other one is never taken away once the autism one is given. Okay. Or... They make it all the way through this process and they get an autism diagnosis and the buck stops, stops there and nobody goes further to assess mm -hmm. motor symptoms, to assess attention symptoms, things like that. Okay. It's all just considered part of their autism. Uh, what we're really interested in is how much of that is really just part of your autism and mm -hmm. how much of it is really a completely separate condition in the same person. Okay. So I would say from what we're finding so far, I'm not sure I can tell you what percentage of people mm -hmm. with autism truly have a yeah. co-occurrence because I think it's only been in the last, you know, five or six years that we've really developed an awareness of the level of co-occurrence that okay. might really be happening here. Okay. And so specifically the characteristic that you look at and study here is the sociomotor um, deficits or development of the individual, is that correct? Sensory motor, yeah. Okay, sensory yeah. motor. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit more about what that looks like? Sure, so what we're really interested in is how people with autism use their vision to help them with movement, coordination, balance, things like that. Okay. And it's a really complex system. I give the analogy of a string of Christmas lights. We're getting close to the holidays, so we'll use, <laughs> we'll use this as an example. Um, so in a string of Christmas lights, when you unpack them out of your attic and you plug them in and they don't turn on, mm -hmm. how do you know which bulb is out? It's sort of the same okay. with some of the motor symptoms that we see in autism. We don't know if it's the first bulb, which is could you direct your eyes to something important in the environment? Mm -hmm. Or if it's the second bulb, which is how does your brain take in the information that your eyes got? Okay. Or if it's the third bulb, how does your brain integrate that with what your body should do? So there are okay. a lot of bulbs yeah. along the strand, right? And this idea of using vision to help guide movement is a very complex set of systems that involves a lot of different brain areas. And it takes a lot of fast, online, real-time processing of information. Mm -hmm. If any of those bulbs are out, or even if the connection is a little bit weaker, you're not going to get the same effect, the same behavior, the ideal movement that you might get otherwise. Okay. So we're really interested in figuring out how many bulbs mm -hmm. do we need to sort of adjust here 
and um, if we do start sort of replacing bulbs, fixing bulbs with some sort of intervention, mm -hmm. um, does that improve behavioral symptoms across the board or does it okay. only improve the one thing that we intervened on? Okay. So what first got you interested in that line of research in the sensory motor development of the individual with autism? So I went down the rabbit hole, which happens to a lot of people in research. Yes. I started with a very broad question. Uh, when I started grad school, I was really interested in social behavior okay. and how people with autism interact and communicate socially. And the more I learned about social behavior, I got interested in cognition Okay. because you can't do until mm -hmm. you think, right? And so then I got interested in cognitive neuroscience and the level of the brain. And once you get into the brain, you start realizing there are these really basic, simple, simple processes of taking in sensory information mm -hmm. and turning it into perception, cognition, attention, all these higher order features. So I just sort of slowly went down the rabbit hole until I got to sensory motor features. And um, I did a postdoc at UT Southwestern with a group that was looking at eye movement and motor behavior on a more mechanistic level with uh, sort of fixed head eye tracking where you're not moving your head around. Okay. And I thought, well, okay, this is, this is really interesting and it's important work because it's very similar to the work that's done in the primate literature mm -hmm. on how primates perceive visual motion and how they use their eyes, but it's not how we functionally use our eyes in the natural environment, right? We okay. move our heads around, mm -hmm. we direct our body to what we want to see. Yeah. So I got really interested in this idea of what happens if we free up the head and mm -hmm. free up the body, what do we see then in autism? Okay. And so I really wanted to um, sort of shift a little bit to natural head and eye movement. And that uh, is how I ended up here at UT, uh, UNT Health Science Center. Okay. Because here we have a virtual reality lab and a motion capture lab. Yes. And we added mobile eye tracking to that. And so now our participants can stand and play basically a life-size video game mm -hmm. while we track their eye and body movement. Mm -hmm. And it lets us see what their natural strategies are for tracking things. Okay. Okay. So talk to us a little bit more about what that looks like for the individual who's coming into your lab and yeah. playing this like I mean, real life video game. It really yeah, is not a hard similar. sell for yeah. most people. <laughs> yeah. So they come into the lab and we do a little bit of pre-testing because we want to know um, how is their motor development on the whole? How do they stack up against people who are their same age? Mm -hmm. What's their IQ level like? What's their language level like? So we do a lot of pre-testing before they play the games. And then they'll come in for a visit and we put little markers on their body mm -hmm. that our motion capture system can track. And then we put them up on the platform and they just watch things in the virtual environment sometimes they stand still and watch sometimes they move mm -hmm. sometimes they control objects in the virtual environment much like you would with a Wii Fit mm -hmm. or a, an Xbox 360 um, so you're playing with your body basically mm -hmm. is how you play the games and they do that for about an hour and a half while we collect information about where they're looking where their bodies are how fast they're moving, mm -hmm. how controlled their movement is, things like that. And then what do you do with that information? So on the back side, we're looking at all of that information to see if your eyes are directed where your body wants to go, mm -hmm. can you get there faster and more efficiently? Okay. 
if your eyes aren't directed where your body wants to go, does it mess it up? Does it make it harder for you to get to where you're trying to be? And we're trying to understand, does that look different in autism than it does in typical development? Okay. And then also, does it look different than developmental coordination disorder okay. or dyspraxia, okay. which is a pediatric movement disorder? We use that group as, we call it a pseudo-control. It means they're sort of a control group, mm -hmm. but they have some overlap in symptoms with autism, so they're not 100% a control. Okay, do you have an actual like 100% control group? You yes. Yeah. So we have neurotypical kids. Okay. Um, we exclude for certain medications that can impact your movement mm -hmm. um, and your eye movement, and we exclude for some genetic conditions and history of severe concussions, things like yeah. that that can impact how your eyes and body move, and that's our true control group. Okay, and then once you analyze that data, do you share this information with the parents? Do you Are, you, are your hopes um, and goals to provide an intervention that targets these skills and deficits? Yeah, what is so short term, um, parents who or, or adults who participate in this study get a report of the testing that we do in the first phase, so okay. the IQ test, the movement test, things like that. Okay. The second phase, the the sort of life-size video mm -hmm. game testing, that we don't have a report for. That we just sort of discuss with a parent or, or with a person, and we say, here's what we saw in the movement, and so here's what we might recommend uh, okay. to sort of improve your balance or improve your coordination. What are some of those recommendations that you would give? So sometimes we recommend that people talk to a physical therapist, okay. see if that would be a good fit for them, because sometimes it really is um, severe enough that a child is falling pretty regularly, Mm -hmm. unable to sit up straight in a chair without sort of having to lean on something, mm -hmm. um, having difficulty with sports, but they mm -hmm. want to engage in sports, yeah. and so uh, that can warrant physical therapy sometimes. Sometimes it's as simple as adapted PE in okay. the school. That's an option for some kiddos. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just get up and move a little bit more. I okay. think that's a recommendation we give a lot, especially for our kids on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a tendency to let kids with autism and adults with autism be very sedentary mm -hmm. and just sit and read or sit and watch YouTube or mm -hmm. sit on the computer. And it's pretty typical of a lot of adolescents and adults. I'd say we're all guilty of being mm -hmm. too sedentary. Um, but in autism in particular, this can be a problem down the line uh, because it leads to social, social isolation. It leads mm -hmm. to obesity and chronic health problems. Um, at a higher rate than it does in the typical population. Okay. And why are like examining interventions and supports and things like that so important with individuals with autism? So my big sell for this is we have to do the research that we're doing now to understand how things work mm -hmm. so that we know how to develop the right kind of intervention. Okay. Because you want best bang for your buck, yes, right? You absolutely. want good return on investment. And parents and families are so overwhelmed with the cost of interventions, with the time it takes, with running your kid around to four different providers in four different parts of town, that if we're gonna propose an intervention, which is the ultimate goal mm -hmm. of this, we wanna make sure it's really targeted and it's really effective mm -hmm. so that we're not wasting people's time and money. Absolutely. And I think for anybody who's considering any kind of intervention, whether it's motor or otherwise, that's the thing to think about. Is there enough scientific evidence for this mm -hmm. that we're gonna get our money's worth? Yeah. If not, save your money, mm -hmm. wait a little bit longer, see if something evidence-based comes along, or even save your money and go and get a one-on-one -on -one job coach mm -hmm. for your adult child on the spectrum instead of 
a fringy sort of unreliable yeah. therapy. Save your money and get uh, an interventionist who can work with your kid after school on a one-to-one -one basis. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of great options out there, but um, for parents, I think there's always that cost-benefit calculation, yeah, and we want to make sure if we develop an intervention that it's low cost and high Worth benefit. Time. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned evidence-based. What does that mean for our listeners who might not know? Yeah. So when we say evidence-based in science, what we mean is, has somebody done a study mm -hmm. to show that this intervention does what we think it does mm -hmm. to the degree that we think it does Okay. in as many people as we think it does? So okay. it's kind of a multi-layered thing. We want to know, is it doing what it says it does? And also, does it work for anybody other than the first couple of people they tried it on. Because mm -hmm. you might get what we call like a sample of convenience. You might have found the five kids from this clinic and you did your study on them and your intervention worked great. Mm -hmm. But maybe those five kids all had something in common that you weren't aware of mm -hmm. that doesn't apply to everybody else. Mm -hmm. So when you go to put your intervention out in the general public, it may not work as well. Mm -hmm. So what we look for in research is for something to be reliable, which means that if you do it more than one time with more than one group of people, it produces the same result every time. Mm -hmm. And we look for it to be valid. Is it doing what we think it's doing? Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the two criteria that we would evaluate on. Okay, and ideally you would want that study to be replicated with um, other individuals mm -hmm. with other characteristics, mm -hmm. right, to kind of broaden how you can yeah, use that. absolutely. And, and it's, in my mind, it's not a problem if you have an intervention that doesn't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Yeah. As long as you know that it consistently works the same way and you know who it works for, yeah. right? Okay. So that's really important. And I think we, we get into this habit of thinking that everything has to be ABA because that's the only thing that works mm -hmm. for a lot of people. I don't think that's necessarily the case. ABA works great for a lot of mm -hmm. folks for a lot of skills, but it doesn't work for everyone and mm -hmm. it doesn't work for all skills. Yeah. So you're going to have to go and find something complementary to that mm -hmm. in most cases. And in those cases, it's okay if you find something that doesn't work for every child. Mm -hmm. But you want to make sure that it's safe, mm -hmm. that it's reliable, that it's validated, mm -hmm. and hopefully that it's published somewhere in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. Okay. If you find something that's behind a paywall that you can't get to, you just give me a call and I'll go get it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I know okay. that's a big frustration for parents. Sometimes yes. they'll go Googling and they find mm -hmm. these papers and they're in they're journals like, you don't have access to. Yeah. And it's like, well, how am I supposed to evaluate this if I can't mm -hmm. even get to it? And that leads to a good question. If you are... Um, recommending parents to look for these evidence-based strategies, what's the best place for them to find that? I mean, would you recommend them to just Google it, or is there a hub of information that you could offer or provide yeah. them? So there are a couple of resources out there. I think there are a lot of great online autism organizations. I tend to direct people toward the Autism Speaks toolkits. Okay. Um, not everybody loves Autism Speaks, and I'm okay with that. I don't expect everybody to. I will say they've changed a lot about their mission in the last year and a half. So um, if folks out there are new to the organization or have had bad feelings in the past, give it a new shot. There's a okay. whole different group of leadership, and they're trying to really have a broader more representative reach. Okay. Um, so where I would direct people is to their toolkits okay. because they have a lot that just describe what medications do, mm -hmm. what different types of therapies do, mm -hmm. and they don't necessarily say you should do this one or you shouldn't do that one. Mm -hmm. The toolkits really just lay out what is it supposed to do and what do we know from the scientific literature okay. about this. Okay. And so there from that point, families are a little more informed to say, 
this sounds like something I want to look more into, mm -hmm. or this doesn't really sound like it's for us. Okay. National Autism Association also has some great resources on their website. Okay. And so does the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. Okay. And, and if they're, oops, sorry, no, one more. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Kennedy Krieger Center has a website called the Interactive Autism Network, the IAN or EN Network. Okay. That's another great resource for parents. And I think they are um, one of my favorites to send parents to in some ways because they are not a nonprofit that does fundraising. Okay. They're not out to get you to donate to mm -hmm. them. They really just have a lot of resource on their website. Okay. So it's a good hub for families. That's awesome. Now, you seem to have a lot of experience interacting with families and talking to families. What are some common misconceptions about autism that you hear from those families or from people you interact with? So I was really excited that you sent this question <laughs> so that I would have a chance to think about it in advance because there are so many misconceptions. Mm -hmm. But the ones that I wanted to highlight um, that come up maybe the most often as points of frustration for our families um, are that people with autism don't want or need relationships. Okay. Lots and lots of people with autism do want relationships. Mm -hmm. They do feel lonely. They do want friends. They want romantic relationships. Yeah. They want to feel close to people. Um, so for a lot of folks on the spectrum, that misunderstanding has caused a lot of pain and isolation. And I think it's time for us to shift our way of thinking from just because you don't do it the way I do it mm -hmm. to hey, you do it differently, and maybe there's some value in me learning how to relate in your way mm -hmm. instead of expecting you to relate the way that I do. Okay. So that's a big one. Another one is that it's something to be embarrassed about or shy about disclosing. I think some families um, isolate themselves because they don't want to tell other people what's mm -hmm. going on with them. Uh, and what's really important to me is that people understand, in a lot of ways, having autism is no different than having blue eyes or brown hair okay. or having a certain body shape. Mm -hmm. It's not something to be embarrassed about. It's something biological, and you have no control over mm -hmm. it. So the more people know, the more they have the opportunity to offer help, mm -hmm. to offer support, and to be accepting. There are jerks in the world. So sometimes people aren't going to be as supportive as you would want them to yeah. be. But by and large, a lot of the research that's done on this shows that self-disclosure from a self-advocate on the mm -hmm. spectrum or parent disclosure to teachers can actually help build support and engagement mm -hmm. for folks on the spectrum. Absolutely. So I, think that's I, would, I would think that that would help build self-confidence and self-esteem and things like that if they don't feel like they're hiding all of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. We tell our participants all the time, you don't have to even use the autism label, but if you develop an effective way to describe what you feel mm -hmm. or what's hard for you yeah. or what the challenges are, then that can help people rally around mm -hmm. you. But if you're comfortable with saying, I have autism or I'm autistic, depending on how people prefer mm -hmm. to be labeled, um, then you can use that label as a support, mm -hmm. as a scaffold. It shouldn't yeah. be a burden for anybody. It shouldn't be something that prevents you from anything that you want to do. It should be a tool in your toolkit that mm -hmm. you can use to help you when you need to help somebody understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that applies to everyone, right? Like oh, if for you sure. have any challenges, you want to be able to disclose that to people around you so that they can rally around you absolutely. and come to support you. So Absolutely. Um, the other one that I wanted to talk about is there's always sort of this push and pull in the community of 
is autism really, really difficult and is it painful and is it terrible or is it awesome and wonderful and we should mm -hmm. celebrate it? And I think families have such different opinions on this because everyone's experience is so different. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make it clear that from our perspective, there are people who find autism to be painful. They may have sensory symptoms that make living in an everyday world very uncomfortable for them. Mm -hmm. And that's valid. That's their experience. We yeah. don't expect them to celebrate those things that are painful or difficult for mm -hmm. them. There are also families who think their autism is an absolute blessing and mm -hmm. they love it and it gives them great perspective and it makes them unique and wonderful. And that's valid too. Mm -hmm. So from our perspective in, in our lab group, what we say is we're here for everybody with autism, no matter what your autism looks like or feels mm -hmm. like. And we think it's just as valid for parents to come in or for self-advocates to come in and say, this is hard for me, I'm uncomfortable, I don't like this. Mm -hmm. As much as it is for them to come in and say, this is wonderful and I love it and it's part of who I am. Yes, definitely. Okay, those are some unique misconceptions. <laughs> you know, I've asked that question to a couple other people, and those are very different answers from what I've gotten before. Oh, so I'd love thank to know you. what your other answers were. Just, you know, a lot of the things that you hear um, pretty regularly about just, like, oh, it autom if they have autism, that automatically means that they have, like, a dietary issue, mm. and you should turn to that intervention, mm -hmm. or... Um, it, like you said, I mean, the relationship one is pretty typical of, oh, if they have autism, that automatically means they don't want to be touched or mm -hmm. interacted with, or they're not going to make eye contact with you, you know, just debunking some of those yeah. common things that we hear. And I can definitely testify from personal experience that I had some students who really didn't like to be touched and didn't mm -hmm. want that affection and didn't sure. enjoy that at all. But then I had other students who wanted to give me hugs all day long. Sure. So, you know, it is very individualized and very different. And that's where I think the challenge really is for educators, for family members, for friends, for mm -hmm. clinicians, for significant others, is to take the time to, just like you would with anyone, get to know an individual. Mm -hmm. What is it that you like? What is it that you don't like? And you may just ask overtly. We do that with some of our participants. We say, what is it that really annoys you? What should we not do? Yeah. You know, that helps yeah. sometimes because if someone can vocalize that to you, um, it, it can go on your list of things not to do and all of a sudden you've become a safer space for them. Absolutely. If they can't verbalize it, then it's really up to you to watch for nonverbal cues yeah. and to see, does this person seem tense or uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. Can I adjust what I'm doing and kind of ease a little bit of that anxiety or that stress? Yeah. So I think it really just comes down to being humanistic. Mm -hmm. Can you be aware of people, really pay attention to verbal and nonverbal cues yeah. and get to know somebody as an individual? And that made me think that's another one that I've often heard is that an individual with autism will never be able to communicate, mm -hmm. never never be able to verbalize what they're thinking or feeling, um, which isn't the case. You know, yeah. a lot of individuals with autism end up talking and carrying on conversations and things like that. Yeah. So. And, you know, you work around it on a day-to-day -day basis. We've had some folks who come in and, and are verbal. They have capability for expressive language, but they just don't feel very talkative some mm -hmm. days. And so we've had days where we just pass notes back and forth with our participants. You know, you yeah. can always adjust your yeah. approach to make somebody more comfortable. Absolutely. And I think something that I often hear from families is that um, they're I think what they immediately think when they receive a diagnosis of autism is that their child is never going to be able to accomplish mm -hmm. what he or she wants to mm -hmm. accomplish or never be able to achieve any of that person's goals or dreams and that's a huge misconception mm -hmm. you know I think it just comes down to equipping them and mm -hmm. helping them learn strategies and um, things like that to deal with the deficits that we all experience exactly. you know so exactly yeah 
Um, okay, so let's get back to your research interests a little bit and talk to me about why studying movement is important for this specific population. So you've mentioned this a little bit, but what have you found um, when you encounter individuals with autism and you're looking specifically at their movement? So the reason we're really interested in movement is because it's the foundation for everything that we do. Mm -hmm. So thinking developmentally, for infants, for very young children, movement is how they explore their environment, mm -hmm. and it's also how they communicate with their caregivers. Before they have language, they're flapping their arms and legs around if they need your attention, yeah. right? That's what babies do. Mm -hmm. They wallow around in their cribs and wave their arms. They reach for things to show you what they want. Yeah. They'll reach for your face and mm -hmm. pat your face before they speak, and I say all of this as the mom of a two-year-old having just gone through a lot of these developmental stages. So for young children, movement is really what helps them learn about the world mm -hmm. and learn that people are different from objects. Mm -hmm. Because when you gesture and when you move your body and you get a reaction from a person, all of a sudden you learn, oh, I can control this person. Mm -hmm. I can get what I want from them. I can have my needs met. I can feel good, things like that. So if you don't have a solid foundation of movement, then all of a sudden you're already sort of behind the curve mm -hmm. in the sense of not having as much opportunity to explore and engage. Okay. So then in older children, movement is how they engage socially with peers. They might engage on the playground, playing games mm -hmm. with peers. Um, they do a lot of gesturing in their early development as they're learning to tell stories and use their hands to illustrate and their bodies to illustrate. And motor, motor skills are required for the classroom as well. Mm -hmm. You've got to be able to sit upright in a desk, mm -hmm. which for a lot of us seems like not that big of a deal. Yeah. But for somebody with a, with a movement disorder, that can be really challenging. You've got to be able to write with mm -hmm. your hand or yeah. take notes or draw shapes. Mm -hmm. um, all of these things are hard. And then for adolescents and adults, movements required for driving, mm -hmm. especially what we call visuomotor integration, using your vision to plan movements, you've got to have that to drive, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're constantly looking and deciding where to move the wheel based yeah. on what your eyes see. It's required for sports, for self-care skills, for vocational or job skills. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time you have to have motor coordination. And then for older adults, movement is really important because it has to do with fall risk mm -hmm. and injury risk. Mm -hmm. And we actually see that adults with autism have a higher rate of emergency department use for falls and injury wow. than typically developing people. Okay. And we think some of that is to do with the fact that they have difficulty with balance and coordination. Okay. So it's really important for us to understand movement in autism at all of these developmental stages. Yeah and figure out if we can intervene at an earlier age to prevent some of these fall and injury mm -hmm. risks later in life. It gives you more of a bigger picture of what this could lead to Absolutely. rather than just my child looks a little awkward when yeah. it runs on the playground. Absolutely. And what are some of those typical signs that a parent could identify in their child if they have some kind of movement or motor deficit? So one thing that we always tell parents when we're out in the community is if you think your child is just clumsy, mm -hmm. if you think, oh, he's just he runs a little bit funny or has difficulty bumping into things or she really seems to miss every time she goes to sit down on a chair or a bench okay. that child might actually have developmental coordination disorder okay we used to call this dyspraxia okay and this is a movement disorder that's really characterized by having more difficulty with motor skills than other people your age okay pretty straightforward mm -hmm. so this is something that we diagnose in childhood but the symptoms can persist into adulthood. We don't typically diagnose it in adults. We just say that adult is clumsy. Okay. 
that's maybe not the right approach, okay. but it's mostly what happens right now. Mm -hmm. So if you think your child is extremely clumsy or if they seem to have a lot of difficulty with motor skills, get them assessed. Okay. Go to your pediatrician and say, have we ever thought about assessing our child for DCD? Okay. Um, and see if your pediatrician refers you to a neurologist mm -hmm. or to somebody else who has a specialty, maybe a developmental pediatrician, who can really assess that child's motor control. Okay, so it would have to be a referral from the pediatrician? Most likely. Okay. A lot of a lot of standard general practice pediatricians aren't comfortable assessing and diagnosing DCD. Okay, um, it's not super common. It's about one to seven percent of the population okay. that has DCD, and so sometimes they'll refer you to somebody who sees it more regularly in okay. the scope of their practice. Okay, but it's important because physical therapy and other motor interventions can help with mm -hmm. DCD, and so you want to do that as early as possible, ideally. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other thing is to always have your child's eyesight regularly checked. You know, okay. we're talking mm -hmm. about visuomotor integration, the vision part is a big deal. And um, it needs to be done by somebody who knows how to do this in autism because it can be behaviorally a little more difficult than your average target eye exam, yes. right? So you don't necessarily want to just take your kid into a target and say, hey, I need somebody to assess his or her vision. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure you're going to somebody who has expertise doing that with kids who have behavioral differences. Okay. And we do both of these types of assessment in our lab as part of our research studies. Okay. And okay, so you guys obviously do this research in-house, you know, on your own, but yep. what other research have you turned to when it comes to this line of interest um, that have inspired you, continue to inspire you? What are some of those resources? Yeah, so I have a lot of science heroes. Um, <laughs> probably too big of a list to cover today, but a couple of the things that have been exciting, um, the Society for Neuroscience has just had their meeting, and we have been getting tweets and Facebook posts and emails galore from people telling us how much interest there's been on motor control at that meeting specific to autism. Wow. So this is an area that's kind of gaining some traction and I was mm -hmm. excited because that's a big international conference mm -hmm. and it's an awesome thing to have sensory motor symptoms highlighted there. And that hasn't been the case um, in the past? Not this so is far. Kind of this is, you know, this past summer um, I gave a talk at the International Meeting for Autism Research mm -hmm. and that's our big international autism mm -hmm. community. Um, and that's in SAR? Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. And that meeting, um, a couple of us were talking and we felt like this was the first year that we really felt like the sensory motor folks had a lot of traction. Okay. We had more interest, there were more presentations on this topic, and so I think we're really moving into an awareness that there's something other than social communication going on in okay. autism and that it warrants more study. There are also more people using mobile eye tracking. Okay. to look at this mm -hmm. natural movement of the head and eyes together. And I think that's really important because that's something we can bring into the clinic and into the classroom and into the home mm -hmm. and see how people with autism are just taking in their visual world mm -hmm. beyond the sort of social eye contact types of studies that have been done before. Can you just stop for just a yeah, second and course. talk a little bit about um, some of the studies that have used mobile eye tracking just that you've seen and experience? I mean, come across? Yeah, so there aren't very many so far. Most okay what we're seeing is poster presentations at conferences of okay. data that haven't been published okay. yet. Um, there are just a few folks out there doing mobile eye tracking, but what's more common in the autism field is you'll see these eye trackers that are mounted on a computer. Okay. So there's sort of a bar that goes at the top or bottom of a computer, and you can have stimuli on a computer mm -hmm. screen, and that way a person's head doesn't have to be restricted. They can mm -hmm. sort of move their head around. So I'd say that's kind of a happy medium um, between fully 
freeing up somebody's head and body and just freeing their head and keeping them still in a chair. That's okay. the more common work. And that, um, that sort of research has happened in just basic perceptual kinds of studies, looking at how people with autism track visual motion, moving objects, mm -hmm. um, looking at how they explore a virtual environment. So mm -hmm. if I give you a store with a lot of products and I tell you just look around and find what's interesting, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. um, and then also some social looking and face recognition. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask, haven't there been some studies where they've shown like pictures of people singing mm -hmm. and they they track where like an infant with autism yeah. um, looks on the person's face and things like that? Yeah, so that, um, the keynote speech at MFAR this past year was Ami Klin and a few of his collaborators okay. and they were talking about, um, they're working on developing a diagnostic tool using eye tracking. Okay. For infant looking basically. Mm -hmm. So they would sit an infant in front of this computer screen and they would show them a certain video and watch where their eyes move and how they're exploring that visual scene. Okay. And that that could be then put into a computer algorithm mm -hmm. that would detect whether or not they had these markers for that autism. That's so crazy. Yeah. That's really exciting. exciting. Yeah. So as far as other sort of science heroes, mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of Karen Kahenberg's at Australian Catholic University and of Lisa Azizadeh at USC and Sue Morris at Curtin University in Australia. Okay. All three of those folks are working really in the domain of motor symptoms and autism, in DCD and autism, and they're really doing amazing things. They're trying to do some brain imaging to understand okay. what the networks are that support all of this information processing. And then we've got some collaborators and mentors um, from our group that are always helping to shape our work. Uh, we've got a collaboration with UT Arlington. Priscilla okay. Casola is our colleague there who's fabulous. And she is an expert in DCD. That's where we've really gotten all of our knowledge about DCD. Okay. And then here at UNTHSC, um, Nicoletta Bugnariu and Rita Patterson are a physical therapist and neuroscientist and a biomechanist. Okay. And they've really helped us refine the studies we're doing here. Mary Hayhoe at UT Austin does a lot of eye tracking work and natural movement with eye tracking. She okay. does it in typical development, but okay. she's been a massive resource for us. And then Matt Moscone at University of Kansas is one of my mentors, and he does a lot of sensory motor work in autism as well. So okay. those are some of our science heroes. Okay, and I, for those <laughs> listeners out there who did not catch all of those names, <laughs> I'm going to post all of those names and the resources in the show notes at the end of the episode. Um, okay, so what is something that um, you would want a family to know regarding visual motor integration? So pretty much what we talked about a minute ago, we would mostly want people to know that a clumsy child is sometimes more than just a clumsy okay. child. And that if you think your child with autism is using their eyes differently, then you want to get their vision assessed. Okay. We want parents to understand that visuomotor integration is that building block to all of these other skills. And okay. so if we take a child, for example, who has visuomotor difficulties, mm -hmm. and we put that child in a classroom or in an ABA therapy setting or in a speech therapy setting, and we ask them to learn these skills, we sort of set them up for failure mm -hmm. because we didn't help support these underlying processes of vision and mm -hmm. movement that are going to be required for the higher order tasks they do in their intervention in their classrooms. Okay. So we really want families to understand sometimes you have to intervene at this most basic level before you worry about translating that to a functional behavior. Okay. 
And that's not a very popular thing to suggest because mm -hmm. it's a slower roll, right? Mm -hmm. You may not see immediate results. Um, you may not see these targeted functional goals coming to fruition as quickly. But what you might be doing is setting your child up for easier learning down mm -hmm. the line. And okay. so there's some long-term payoff, we think. How do families typically um, handle or take that information? Do they typically say, okay, that's what we'll do? Or are they a little more hesitant to accept that? You know, we've had a lot of families that say, can't we do both? Okay. So couldn't we put our child in physical therapy and also leave them in ABA? Sure, why not? Okay. Not a problem. Um, couldn't we help our child by sort of giving them some coaching on how to look at the visual environment, but also leave them in speech therapy? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I don't think there's any reason you can't combine the two, but especially if we're talking about a very young child, mm -hmm. you don't want to frustrate them mm -hmm. by putting them in an intervention that's going to give them too high of a skill level that they're being assessed mm -hmm. on without sort of supporting those lower level skills first. So really okay. for the youngest children, it can be very frustrating if they're pushed too hard, too fast. Okay. What is the age of the participants that you typically work with here in the lab? So we work with people all the way from age five up to age 50, five zero. Okay. And that's because when we were talking earlier, you know, I mentioned this is a thing for young children mm -hmm. and older children yes. and adolescents and adults. We're really interested in that whole lifespan perspective on autism. And the reason we stop at 50 is because that's when you'll see some age-related decline in movement okay. and balance mm -hmm. in um, cognition and vision those sorts of things. So we really keep it within an age range um, that we can control and that mm -hmm. we can understand fully, but we want to get as wide of a range as possible to see how these skills change mm -hmm. across the lifespan. So right now I think our oldest participant is 43. Okay. Um, and our youngest participant is six turning seven. Okay. So we're getting there. We're getting a nice wide range of folks. Absolutely. And how do your recommendations differ for obviously like a younger child compared to an adult who is 43? Sure. So we're not clinicians. Mm -hmm. Um, we are researchers, and so the recommendations that we give are pretty broad, and, and okay. they're based on just the results of our research testing. But what we do recommend a lot of the times for our adults is if they don't already have a job coach, mm -hmm. somebody from vocational rehab, that they go ahead and, and okay. find that person, and that they let that person know, one of the things I have difficulty with is movement. Okay. One of the things I have difficulty with is balance. Okay. So that that can be taken into consideration in the job duties that they're assigned. Okay. For kiddos, it looks a little bit different. For kids, it's telling parents, make sure this is in the IEP somewhere. Mm -hmm. Make sure that they have some sort of accommodations mm -hmm. if they have balance difficulties, if they have handwriting difficulties mm -hmm. because of motor symptoms. Um, we really want to make sure that parents have good information going into their ARD meetings so that they can plan IEPs that support every aspect mm -hmm. of their child's symptoms, not just the most obviously academic ones. Yeah, and I think that can be a challenge for teachers to kind of tease out um, what is the cause of, of those course. motor difficulties because a lot of times I mean I was a teacher and I would just assume it was a motivation issue mm -hmm. and I would say okay mm -hmm. we need to reevaluate our reinforcers because clearly they're not motivated enough to do yeah. this task but if I would have known like hey they have some kind of motor deficit mm -hmm. I mean that 
it changes everything. Yeah, so. and that's where we're hoping we can help with the reports that we mm-hmm. give families after Absolutely. they do research because they do get the scores on their motor assessments and things like that to be able to take and say, look, here's where we fall relative to everybody else. Of the 27 participants that have finished our study, mm-hmm. all 27 of them meet the cutoff scores for DCD. Okay on the movement assessment battery for kids. Wow. So um, that's pretty significant, and we don't know if we've just happened to get the 27 who have mm-hmm. DCD and there will be more who don't mm-hmm. who come through, or if most of our participants are gonna end up meeting criteria. It'll be interesting to find out. And how do your assessments differ from the standard assessments used to diagnose autism as far as motor development goes? Because I know some of the um, typical assessments also have, you know, questionnaires that relate to fine motor and gross motor skills. So how are your assessments different from those? Yeah, so the gold standard for diagnosing autism is to use the ADI, the Mm -hmm. Autism Diagnostic Interview, and the ADOS, which Mm -hmm. is the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. The difference um, that I think is maybe a misconception about those two is the ADI has, I think we counted and there were about five items total out of 80-something items altogether that have anything to do with motor skills. Okay. So that's not very much. Yeah. <laughs> and the questions are things like, um, how, how's your child's gait? Mm-hmm. Do they walk unusually? Or um, at what age did they walk without holding on to something? Mm-hmm. These are great pieces of information, yeah. and they're really important to have in the ADI. But we think there's a deeper dive that mm-hmm. needs to happen into motor symptoms beyond those specific questions. So what we do is we do the ADI and the ADOS with our families just to confirm their diagnosis. We're not diagnosing anybody in-house. And then we also do the movement assessment battery for children or the MABC. MABC, okay. And that is a measure that's pretty standard practice for assessing DCD. Okay. We do the DCDQ, which is a screening questionnaire about DCD symptoms. Okay. And then we do the Beery Visuomotor Integration Test, and that is really to look at hand-eye coordination. It's shape drawing and tracing, things okay. like that. Then for adults, we do something called the PANS. The it's a neurological exam, um, and it's meant to look at balance issues and other neurological symptoms. Okay. So that's sort of a substitute for the MABC okay. for our adult participants. Okay. So it's a much more comprehensive mm-hmm. assessment package. Yeah, we're looking at hand dominance, foot dominance. We okay. even look at eye dominance. Wow. So, okay. Yeah, it's a pretty comprehensive thing. And then we have a, a handheld refractometer, which is used for vision screening. Okay. And that is how we assess somebody's visual acuity or how good their vision is. So like if somebody said 2020, mm-hmm. that would be your visual acuity. Okay. Um, and that's what we're looking at and that'll give us information about whether they need to be referred to an ophthalmologist for mm-hmm. maybe having some sort of eye disorder like amblyopia, presbyopia, things mm-hmm. like that. Okay. I have kind of a random question mm-hmm. that I didn't send you beforehand, yeah. but I'm just curious sure. to hear your opinion on it. So I taught PPCD um, for three years, mm-hmm. and so when my students would start at three, one of the common questions parents would ask me, which seems very odd, was which hand is dominant for this mm-hmm. child? So are they right-handed or left-handed? And I would always be like, you know, that's a great question. I don't know, you know. And, yeah. I mean, things that we would look for, obviously, are what they would typically typically grab items with. If I just put a pencil in front of them, which one, like, which hand would they use to pick up that object or that pencil? Um, but is there a better way of, 
you know, identifying which hand the child is dominant. Yes. I love that you asked that question. That's a really important question because we do see a lot of reports of mixed handedness Mm -hmm. in autism in particular. Um, There's been a good bit of research on this and the way that we assess it for our lab, there are a couple of papers that were published where people took the Annette handedness scale and they figured out which items are really predictive of hand dominance okay. and which ones are sort of preferences. Okay. Um, and so from that algorithm, we do a calculation to determine what somebody's hand dominance is for the purpose of our study. Okay. So it's not always just the hand you write with. Sometimes people are right-handed for handwriting mm-hmm. and left-handed for lots of other things. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what we see in autism. Somebody might have been taught to write with yeah. their right hand, but they prefer to do a lot of other things with the left. Or they really are mixed. They do switch back and forth between hands depending on what's convenient. Okay. We have sort of a working hypothesis about this. We have no published data on it. Okay. So this is purely speculative. But one of the things we wondered is it takes balance and stability through your trunk and coordination in your body mm-hmm. to reach out for something with your hand. Mm-hmm. We think in autism, hand dominance might have something to do with what your natural balance is like. Okay. And it might be dominance of convenience more than anything else. So for example, if you're standing and you're reaching for, I've got a coffee cup in front of me. So if I was gonna reach for my coffee cup, I'm sitting turned a little bit to the right and my weight is in my seat Mm -hmm. and I'm shifted a little bit back and to the right. So I'm gonna reach for this coffee cup with my left hand Mm -hmm. because that's the hand that's closest to the cup and it's the hand that I can reach for without having to adjust all of my body posture. Okay but I'm right-handed. Uh-huh. So if you were just to ask me, show me how you reach for a cup, yeah. I would reach for it with my left hand uh-huh. and you would get and wrong would information about left-handed. my hand dominance, yeah. right? So that's what we think is happening in autism. Okay. They may not understand in these questionnaires that we use to assess dominance that I'm asking which hand do you use most of the time or show me how you usually do this. Mm -hmm. They may be showing you how I do this right now based on how my body is positioned. Okay. It may Um, also be the case that they're switching back and forth again based on convenience mm -hmm. just based on how their body is positioned and that they don't have the same kind of dominance that a typically developing person has. I think the jury's still out on some of that but I think it's a really fascinating area of research because we see those reports clinically really mm-hmm. often yeah and it's challenging I think for teachers to know mm-hmm. I mean I'm I want to teach them to start writing which hand do I use yeah. should I just go with one and Absolutely. you know so yeah that definitely can be challenging and I think that definitely needs to be researched more so I'm glad people are looking into it yeah Okay, so you've done a lot of work um, in a lot of different areas throughout your career. Mm -hmm. So what is something you have learned through your experiences interacting with individuals with autism? So the first thing I've learned is that everyone has something to teach you. Okay. I think, um, you know, when you're young and you start out in science, you have this idea that everything you need to know is in a book somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that if you just read enough, you can find it out. And I have really had that misconception challenged across the course of my career. And I have learned a lot, sometimes too late. Sometimes I've learned we were doing something wrong Mm -hmm. too late and we had to go back and fix it in the next study instead of fixing it in the current one. Um, But we learn every single day from our families. And most recently, we've been really interested in how families receive the diagnoses that they Mm -hmm. receive. Um, The more we do these ADIs with parents and, and 
interview them and talk about their family and, and what their journey has been like, the more we realize everyone goes through a different pathway. Mm-hmm. So we've gotten really interested in this question of how are we surveilling or screening people for autism? Yeah. And beyond autism, how are we surveilling for these co-occurrences of ADHD, mm-hmm. of DCD, of other disorders? So that's become a question that I, I didn't think we would ever delve into. It okay. wasn't on my radar a couple of years ago. And the more we've talked to families, the more we've said, you know, at the very least, we need to figure out how this is happening in Fort Worth mm-hmm. for our local community yeah. and maybe try to help make some best practices recommendations for the clinics that are around here Mm -hmm. Um, and then beyond that can we understand how people are doing this nationally Mm -hmm. um, especially for ASD plus DCD and how we can maybe improve the time to diagnosis for that because a lot of kids don't get a DCD diagnosis until they hit school. Wow. Yeah. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's much the same for autism, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of kids don't get assessed fully until they hit the school system. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is we're looking, like I said earlier, at a local healthcare network at Mm -hmm. their charts, and then we're looking at a national database, and we're trying to trace those pathways for folks and see, is there something about the first symptoms that they report that routes Mm -hmm. them a specific way? Is it about what line of service they see? Mm -hmm. If I go to my pediatrician first versus if we get a referral. and go through neurology, if we just go straight to an ABA Mm -hmm. clinic, um, how do we get that diagnosis? If we wait for school, what does it look like there? And whether we can sort of pick apart and say, there's an algorithm we could apply here. Mm -hmm. If we have a child who comes with this first concern at this age, we should always refer to this line of service, or they should always get a secondary assessment for motor symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that's really what we're trying to understand. And it's been parent led because they come in and they say, we sat on wait lists for forever. We got one diagnosis and then they said, no, that's not right. You should have this one instead. Uh, We have so many diagnoses. We don't know which ones are accurate anymore and Mm -hmm. which ones aren't. Yeah, it's really Um, about who you ask and when you ask them. Absolutely. We had a family come through that had six diagnoses for a single child, and he's eight years old. Oh, my goodness. And that is a lot for them to Mm -hmm. take in and to understand how each of those symptoms and how each of those disorders interact with each other and what that means for intervention. So I think anything we can do to sort of clarify those pathways for families be so helpful it's a it's a good thing to be thinking about at Mm -hmm. least absolutely well I always close my episodes with asking somebody for a piece of advice so I want to ask you what piece of advice you would offer to a family of an individual with autism so maybe one of the families that would come into your clinic yeah so this is the advice that I give all the families who come through regardless of what specific issues they're dealing with and it's reach out Okay. Um, I think it's so important that families, whether it's a self-advocate or a parent or a grandparent, that they don't get isolated. Okay. Um, it's a big deal. We have a lot of families that sort of end up stuck at home mm-hmm. because they don't have a sense of community. They don't yeah. know what resources are out there. They don't know who to turn to. And so I want people to just focus on reaching out anywhere they can. Find a local support group because you need community. You need your tribe. You need people who get it. We all do, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Ask a trusted friend or your child's therapist for a respite night. Okay. Self-care for a caregiver is so, so, so Mm -hmm. important. And I think... 
we get into this habit of, I just have to keep pushing through, keep pushing through, and caregiver burnout is a big problem. Mm -hmm. It's best for everybody if a caregiver has a breather once in a while. And I know a lot of my friends who are are interventionists would be more than happy to volunteer a night of their Mm -hmm. time to give one of their families some respite. So don't hesitate to ask for things like that if you need them because you never know who will step up. Look for sensory-friendly events in your area. Reach out to local groups and see what they're doing. Um, If there's not something, reach out and ask for it. That's Mm -hmm. how we got a lot of things started around here. We called and said, hey, are you guys doing anything for autism to all these different cultural groups? And they said, no, should we? We said, yeah, can we help you? So sometimes it's just a matter of looking for a resource, and if you don't find it, poking somebody Mm -hmm. until it materializes. So, What are some of those sensory-friendly activities? Yeah, so here in Fort the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History is a good friend to us and to the autism community. And every year they do an Autism Family Day um, where people with autism and their families can come in, um, sometimes at a reduced rate, sometimes free, depending on the event, and enjoy the museum with some sensory-friendly adjustments. There's always a bit of resource at those events. There's definitely community, and it's open to a wide range of ages. The other thing that um, families could look for is the Fort Worth Library has Mm -hmm. a sensory friendly story time that happens monthly (laughs) it's not all 12 months of the year but it happens most of the 12 months of the year Um, and so families can look for that that's a fun one we work with the Dallas Children's Theater they have a great sensory friendly program and we're hoping to bring that to Casa Manana here in Fort Worth so if anybody has a contact there give me a (laughs) shout Uh, we're really wanting to sort of expand that and then the Eamon Carter Museum has a sensory Saturday event once a month that's for families on the spectrum. Okay, I have also heard that Chuck E. Cheese does sensory-friendly. They do, nights. yeah, they do okay. indeed. Um, so they do some sensory-friendly activities. There are a couple of places that are like the jump, bounce, Oh yeah. you know, okay. or bounce places the that do them. Uh-huh. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember what the place okay. is called that does it, but there are a few of those. And then AMC uh, movie theaters yes. offer sensory-friendly screenings on yes. a pretty regular basis. If people are interested in that, we keep a whole list here in the lab of those okay. types of events and resources, and they can always reach out. We're just autism at unthsc.edu. Okay. Or you can follow us on Facebook at UNTHSC Autism. Okay, and I will post those on the show notes. We share everything we find. So if there are ever sensory-friendly events, our Facebook page is is the best way to find those kinds of things. Okay. So the last one is to reach out to a local university. It doesn't have to be us, but we really encourage families. It could be. We really encourage families to do that to engage in research because it's so important for research studies to have as many types of people with autism as we possibly can. Mm If all we ever research are the quote-unquote high-functioning mm-hmm. adolescents, which is yeah. what you find most often in studies, um, or high-functioning early childhood, three to five mm-hmm. years old, this is the other big pocket, then we're going to end up with a lot of research that's not meaningful for most people. Mm-hmm. What we really hope for is that we'll find people from all walks of life with lots of different backgrounds, lots of different symptoms of a wide range of ages and ethnicities that will all come in and be part of our studies so that we have this really representative sample Mm -hmm. that meets the needs of the most people that we can possibly meet. And I think most universities have that mission but may not have found the right outreach outlets. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we're working hard on. And we just got um, accepted 
into a program that will give us some resource to do outreach to the Hispanic community specifically. It's a health disparities research group. So um, we're excited to head down that avenue here in Fort Worth, but we hope that people nationally um, will just go and find a local researcher and stick your hand up and say, hey, we want to be part of science. How can we do that? Okay. That is, those are great pieces of advice. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the Autism Hour today and sharing your um, knowledge and expertise on this topic. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Autism Hour podcast, where we view each and every individual as valuable and capable. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Miller and are able to access some of the resources she mentioned and learn more about the research she's doing because it's very interesting and helpful in the field of autism. So I hope you enjoy and have a great week. Thank you.